Um, I'm very excited today to welcome uh, Dr. Kashif Munir to join us. Um, he's an associate professor of medicine who works here at the University of Maryland. He's in the Division of Endocrinology. He's also the medical director of the University of Maryland Center for Diabetes and Endocrinology. He's been kind enough to uh, agree to talk to us today about thyroid emergencies. So go ahead and take it away. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, um, you said you're very excited, so hopefully my talk can be exciting, but it is, I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure how exciting it'll be. So, so thyroid emergencies have been around for a very long time, and, um, <clears throat> you know, not much has changed in that very long time. So, uh, so and, and there's very limited data on, um, uh, so namely, we'll be talking about myxedema coma and thyroid storm. And there's very limited data on these conditions just because they tend to be pretty rare. And um, and so, um, you know, most of the data that um, comes uh, is, is observational and is, um, uh, a lot of it's actually from Japan um, where they um, have these large national databases. And so um, we'll go through what they have, which again is not much, but, um, uh, and then just kind of, all right, let me see, I can move my slide. Okay, so, so we'll just, Briefly talk about thyroid physiology and then and then the two kind of extremes of thyroid disease. Um, initially, we we're going to do endocrine emergencies, and even though we go into endocrinology not to have emergencies and not to be bothered by that, um, there actually are quite a few, and um, and so um, it it seemed like my talk was getting too long, so we restricted it to thyroid. Um, uh, and, and most endocrine emergencies tend to be a lot of electrolyte-based things, and so I think you might get some of that um, from other disciplines as well. So just to briefly go through thyroid physiology, just to make sense of, of um, the, the disorders when we start talking about them more. Um, uh, so, you know, there's thyroid um, hormone physiology is, is part of this classic endocrine feedback loop pathway, right? So you have um, the hypothalamic hormone, <clears throat> in which case, you know, in the thyroid case, which is thyrotropin releasing hormone, stimulate the anterior pituitary to make um, thyrotropin or TSH. And then um, that stimulates the end organ, which in this case is the thyroid, to make its hormones. And then that there's negative feedback both on the anterior pituitary and the hypothalamus. And so this is kind of our um, bread and butter endocrine feedback loop. And so the thyroid is is um, part of that classic pathway that we know. And so that's you know really biochemically that's how we um, uh, assess uh, for most thyroid disorders. Um, so Andrea. Um, uh, had told me to um, make this interactive, but I'm not sure how interactive I can be on Zoom because I feel like um, you never know who's there or who's listening. So I don't know if there's a chat box. I guess there is. Um, so maybe we can chat answers or... Yeah, there's definitely a chat box. Yeah, so we okay. can ask people to give them a couple seconds and just... Okay, so, so yeah, so this is kind of a flashback. So those of you who are probably closest to medical school might have the best... Um, recollection of, of, of these answers. So, so which hormone does the thyroid make more of, uh, T4, T3, or T2? And then which hormone has a greater biological activity, which I think this one probably most people will know, T4, T3, or T2. Um, um, and I guess the third question would be, is there even such a thing as T2? Um, so I don't know if I'll give people a minute, see, if, see what they think. All right, so one B and A, okay. We have one brave soul. Okay, we have another one. Oh, now we have a lot of people. Okay, 
Here's some answers coming in. Give me just another second. Yeah, this is exciting. <laughs> Never did this before, so. Um, all right, so most people said BA, which I'm assuming, well, I wouldn't say most people. People said all kinds of stuff. Okay, so, so some BA, some AB, I'm assuming the order you wrote them in is, is the order of the questions. And then um, some people saying more T3 and bio T, I'm sorry, more T4 and bio T3, T4, T3. Yeah, so you're, so you're right. So, so most people I think got this, a few people had it a little bit backwards, but um, so there is, um, you know, T4 is more abundant and T3 is a more biologically active. So in endocrinology, that's kind of how a lot of things work. So for example, in vitamin D, it's the same. 25-hydroxy is more abundant, but 125 is more active. And so the idea is that, and then, you know, total hormones are more abundant, but then the free hormone fractions are more active. And so the idea is that, you know, your active biological um, hormone is, is more finely regulated. So there's less of it, but you can kind of fine tune it. So that's the idea here. So, um, so the thyroid um, you know, makes about 90, 95% thyroxine or T4, and then um, and, and only a small amount of T3. And then T3 is usually peripherally derived um, by deiodination. So this chemical um, uh, enzymatic reaction, which, which causes T4 to lose an iodine. So it gets deiodinated into T3, which is the more active form. A lot of this happens in the liver, but it can happen um, tissue specific as well. So for example, in the heart, it's a big place where this is important. Um, <clears throat> and so um, T3 can act more locally when it's needed. Um, and this becomes um, somewhat important in, in this non-thyroidal illness or what we used to refer to as euthyroid 6 syndrome as well. So we'll talk about that. Um, and so, you know, this kind of just goes over that, you know, the thyroid hormone is secreted by the thyroid gland and, and T4 and T3 are both secreted. Um, but T3 is really the biologically active form. And, and T, if you remember thyroxine, even though it's not a steroid hormone, um, and we think of steroid home, hormones have, have, as having intranuclear receptors and peptides having more cell surface receptors, although there's plenty of exceptions to that. But the thyroid does tend to mostly have intracellular effects, intranuclear effects uh, via its in, um, intranuclear receptor um, and, and directly on genetic transcription. And as as you're well aware that thyroid hormones found um, extensively, thyroid hormone receptors are found extensively throughout the body. And, and so thyroid hormone is important for um, many different functions across many different organ systems uh, for metabolism basic, uh, mainly. Um, so, so this is just kind of uh, detailing what happens. So T4 or, or levothyroxine, which um, has the four iodine molecules, gets deiodinated into T3. Um, and then the final me metabolite is T2. So this was the other part of the question, is there such a thing as T2? So there are diiodo, um, you know, versions of, of, of the hormone, um, which is, is, is also pretty inert. So there's no real metabolic function here. And then if you, if you, um, you know, get deiodinated, um, where you lose the iodine molecule in, in this position, um, you get reverse T3, which is also metabolically inert. So so these are, these are not active hormones, and this is the most active, and this has you know, some biological activity. So, um, and this, again, becomes important in our non-thyroidal illness, um, where um, we kind of get to sh a shunting of enzymatic activity towards this type 3 deiodinase and away from type 1 and type 2. So we have more reverse T3 and less T3. Um, 
and that's thought to be due to some you know metabolic preservation of somebody who's um, who's critically ill. <clears throat> um, and then just to kind of quickly remind, I won't belabor this too much. I'm, I swear there's only one or two more slides, but just to give you an idea of how how all this works. So the iodine, you know, the importance of iodine as it's taken up into the um, thyroid follicular cells um, in terms of um, forming um, uh, T3 and T4. And so if you remember this monoiodinated and diodinated tyrosine, um, which eventually, um, uh, you know, so two um, DITs um, become T4 and then an MIT plus a DIT become T3. And then these are kind of re um, uh, endocytosed and secreted then uh, uh, into the circulation from the thyroid follicular cell. So just basic physiology. So just to kind of go through non-thyroidal illness, even though it's not an emergency, but something that probably you see more of than any of the emergencies, especially in the critical care unit. And so one of the key um, things that we, we tell people is don't check thyroid function study in critically ill patients unless you're really suspicious of thyroid disease because you will see things all over the place and it's not usually helpful and rather leads to further workup for something that really doesn't need that. Now, obviously, if you have somebody who has clear symptoms of thyroid disease, then, then you want to check. But, but again, if, if they don't, then, then we don't recommend checking it. Um, so this NTI, which you know used to be called euthyroid six syndrome or six euthyroid syndrome or, or so on, um, you know it's just basically this this um, uh, really it's a low T3 syndrome is the main um, uh, the main thing that we see and and then if you're really critically ill your T4 levels eventually fall as well and so like I was showing before you kind of shunt more towards reverse T3 and less towards biologically active T3 and the thought is to kind of provide this <clears throat> metabolic um, almost like a hiber hibernation state, like you decrease your metabolism uh, for other organ systems to kind of help um, preserve um, uh, capacity to um, fight, ward off whatever critical illness that you have. Um, and so this kind of, I don't know why I did all this, but um, this kind of shows you what happens, but you, you know, you have this kind of critically ill state and you increase your D3 activity, which, which, um, which is this diodinase 3, which, um, uh, uh, converts more uh, T4 into reverse T3, um, and then you decrease D2, which uh, decreases T4 to T3 conversion. Um, you know, so basically, you have more reverse T3 and less T3. And at the end of the um, at the end of it all, you basically have a low T3 syndrome. Usually, the T4 is normal initially, um, uh, but eventually it can it can go low. And the TSH, by I guess um, usually it'll be low, but it can sometimes be high initially too. So, so it can be a little bit less predictable, um, uh, but usually it won't be very high. So if it starts to get above 10 or 15, then you should be more suspicious that it's actually hypothyroidism or, um, you know, or primary thyroid disease and not just uh, euthyroid 6 syndrome. Um, but if, it, you know, if it's 7, 6, 8, uh, just slightly elevated, then the TSH could still be um, just abnormal as part of this NTI. Um, and so you can see here, the TSH can kind of be all over the place, but what you, what you typically do see is the T3 goes down um, and then eventually the T4 lags behind, but will eventually go down as well. And then as you recover, all of these axes basically go back to, back to normal. Um, okay, so that's kind of thyroid physiology. Um, so we'll talk um, basically about each of these disorders in turn. So thyroid storm, so this is basically data looking at everybody admitted for thyrotoxicosis, and then the gray bars are, are actually diagnosed with thyroid storm. And this is in the US, 
um, you know, over a, over a decade of, uh, of time. And so what you see is that um, it's roughly a little bit less than 20% of patients who are admitted for thyroid toxicosis actually have thyroid storm. And we'll define what thyroid storm is in just a sec. Um, so it is a rare disorder. Um, you know, not that many people are admitted for thyroid toxicosis to begin with, as they probably shouldn't be, because <clears throat> most of this can be managed um, in the ambulatory setting. But, um, but if they are admitted, you know, even a smaller percentage actually have thyroid storm. Um, and so just to kind of remember the, you know, the axis basically in hyperthyroidism, um, you lose um, the, um, uh, you know, you kind of lose the whole feedback cycle where there's thyroid gland autonomy. Now this is endogenous hyperthyroidism. And so, you know, the thyroid itself becomes overactive, making much more of these thyroid hormones, T4 and, and T3, um, uh, both, uh, both by the thyroid and, and exogenous conversion. And then you get negative feedback, and so your TSH tends to be very low. Now, um, the only time this doesn't apply, obviously, is if you have primary pituitary disease. TSH secreting adenomas do exist, but they're exceedingly rare. I've never actually, I didn't look this up, but I've never actually read of a case or heard of a case of thyroid storm due, due to a TSH secreting adenoma. So probably theoretically could occur, but, but exceedingly rare. So not really something you ever should ever need to worry about. Um, but if you do see a TSH that's not suppressed, um, maybe you could think of that. But, but again, most of the time, this is going to be primary thyroid disease. And which thyroid disorders cause it, we'll, we'll um, talk about right now. Um, so, so basically, anything that can cause thyroid toxicosis um, can cause thyroid storm. Um, but the typical ones are grave disease and toxic nodules, whether it's a toxic adenoma or multinodular, you know, toxic multinodular goiter. So those can do it thyroiditis can do it. And then basically anything that can cause, like I said, hyperthyroidism. So there's reports of amiodarone induced. We actually had a, we had a, it was weird. We were, um, when I was on consult, we had like three patients at the same time who had amiodarone induced thyrotoxicosis who actually um, developed thyroid storm. So all these weird, <clears throat> rare things tend to cluster together for some uh, strange reason. Um, so hyperthyroidism itself is roughly about 1% of the population and you can see about half is overt and half is subclinical. Um, and the most common endogenous cause is, is Graves' disease. Um, uh, and so, you know, like I said, the thyroid hormone affects basically all of your um, uh, organ uh, tissue systems in the body. And, um, uh, and when you have thyroid storm, you kind of just have this exaggerated response and, um, uh, and, and, and effect on all of these. Signs. So, so the typical signs of thyroid toxicosis um, are even more profound and, and um, uh, exaggerated in, in, in the case of thyroid storm. So these are just you know, the, the usual signs we think of of just being more basically metabolically active, like more hyper, more anxious, more um, you know, hyper, uh, hypertension, tachycardia, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and then the effects, um, you know, I think for the ICU, this, this becomes maybe a little bit more... Um, important or really the hemodynamic effects. And so um, what's interesting is in hyperthyroidism, you, you typically have higher um, systolic um, uh, pressures and hypothyroidism, you also get hypertensive, but it tends to be more um, higher diastolic uh, pressure. So with hyperthyroidism, usually there's a wide pulse pressure because the diastolic pressure, <clears throat> it tends to be a little bit lower and the, and the systolic tends to be high. And then the, basically the opposite is true with hypothyroidism. Um, and so, you know, you can get these high output um, uh, cardiac uh, heart failure um, 
uh, with hyperthyroidism. Um, and so this is just kind of looking at, you know, how we diagnose. This is more routine hyperthyroidism, and we'll, we'll talk about thyroid storm um, in the next probably slide or two. Um, so, so typically we do, you know, uptake and scan. Um, the uptake is just a percentage of the thyroid hormone um, tracer, the, the iodine label tracer that's taken up by the thyroid. Um, so that, um, uh, that tends to be um, uh, expressed, it's just a percentage, a, a number percentage. Um, and, and then the, um, what happened here? Sorry, I lost the screen. Okay, um, so that's a percentage. And then the scan actually shows us, you know, what, um, why the gland is overactive. It gives us a better idea of a differential. So you can see with Graves, <clears throat> the scan will have, um, you know, diffuse uptake throughout the gland. Whereas in a, in a, in a you know, uninodular or toxic adenoma or multinodular uh, toxic goiter, you'll have these hot spots. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, the, the, prelim the preliminary way we, we diagnose um, thyroid toxicosis etiology is, is through this uptake and scan. Um, you can use ultrasound. And so the only reason I put this in is that in the ICU or in a critical care setting, it's, it's very difficult to do, um, to do an uptake and scan. It's a two-day test. You have to do a 24-hour uptake. You need to give radio-labeled iodine. A lot of these patients have had um, iodinated contrast. Um, recently because they've had a CT, um, you know, of something uh, or other. And so, and, and when you give a, a big load of cold iodine with the, you know, the contrast, then you can't really do the uptake and scan because, um, because the radio labeled iodine will just not be able to compete with all the, the big load of, of iodine that you gave with the contrast. So, so you're really limited in doing the uptake and scan in the ICU setting. So there is some role for, for ultrasound in those cases. Um, and usually with Doppler flow, you can get some idea. So with Graves, for example, I just, as an example, you typically have a big, um, large heterogeneous gland with a lot of blood flow. So Graves glands tend to be very hypervascular. Um, in um, toxic nodular goiter, you can often see, um, you know, you'll see the multi-nodular goiter, so you'll see the nodules. And again, the nodules will have often a lot of flow. And in something like thyroiditis, you would see, you know, usually a heterogeneous gland, but, <clears throat> but limited to no blood flow. Um, uh, and typically no nodules. And so, so it does sometimes help to do an ultrasound if you want to get a better sense of etiology in a critical care setting, because you can still do that, um, especially in amiodarone-induced thyrotoxicosis, where, you know, it can either be necrotizing and you want to treat those patients with steroids, or it could be the iodine load um, from the amiodarone actually um, causes an autonomous gland to become more active. And, and so that those patients you would treat with methimazole. So it can help um, to decide which way to go with treatment. Um, and so this is just you know, a quick diagram of Graves' disease. So you know that TSH binds to, to the um, TSH receptor to stimulate thyroid hormone synthesis. And in Graves, you have basically the um, autoantibody that binds to these receptors and causes an unregulated stimulation of thyroid hormone synthesis. <clears throat> So just again, this is just for general thyrotoxicosis, and then I think my um, I think finally my next slide will be um, uh, get more into thyroid storm. Um, so we um, you know, generally we we measure um, uh, TSH and um, uh, and and free T4 levels, and um, you know, the free T4 um, is important just to kind of give you a baseline measurement of how how hyper they are. Um, and, um, and it's important to monitor treatment. So 
For example, if you're in the ICU and you measure TSH and it's undetectable and you measure free T4 and it's, say three times the upper limit of normal, um, you know, free T4 really is gonna be your measurement of choice going forward, even though TSH is the most sensitive to diagnose um, because the TSH is gonna stay suppressed for a while. Um, and the more hyper you are and the longer you're hyper, TSH can take a while to come back. So this comes back to this whole feedback loop that if your pituitary is suppressed, um, it can take a while for it to become unsuppressed. And so the TSH is just gonna stay low for a, a long time. So free T4 is really the way we, we measure um, how well you're being treated. Um, now T4 does have a one week half-life. So it's not gonna change. So it's not something that's valuable in checking every single day because it is such a long half-life and it'll take, a lot, it'll take a while no matter what treatment you give for it to fall. But we might check it every few days just to kind of get a sense and make sure things are trending in the right direction for people that are in thyroid storm or severely um, thyroid toxic. Um, and so this just kind of shows the, this kind of reverse log linear um, um, sensitivity. So TSH levels, um, you know, can change from, uh, you know, 0.1 to, to 10 um, or even up to 100 um, with just very small changes in free T4. So these levels are in um, SI units, but this is roughly you know, like 0.8 to 1.8. Um, so, you know, within, within one point, 0.8 to 1.8, your TSH can be going anywhere from relatively undetectable up to 100. So, so the, the TSH levels vary a lot more than free T4 levels. Um, okay, so next question, let's make sure everybody's still awake. Um, so how is thyroid storm different from thyrotoxicosis? So, um, so in thyroid storm, the level, you know, thyroid hormone levels are higher. Um, then, then with just thyrotoxicosis, uh, is thyroid storm associated with mental status changes, whereas thyrotoxicosis is not, or is thyroid storm associated with hyperthermia, whereas thyroid storm is not? So I'll give another um, 30 seconds to a minute and see if uh, people have um, ideas about this. I see B's, I see C's. Anyone for A? Okay, so um, so I see mostly B's and C's, which is good, but I guess um, uh, nobody was daring because I didn't really say that you only have to pick one answer. So it's a little bit of a trick question, but so it is roughly, you know, it's, it's B and C both are, are actually um, the right answer. So, so this is an important point that your thyroid hormone levels can be very similar if you have thyrotoxicosis versus actual thyroid storm. Um, so there isn't really um, any notable difference. Now, if you have subclinical hyperthyroidism, you're not going to go into thyroid storm. So that's, you know, you have to have some elevation of thyroid hormone levels, but, <clears throat> but in general, you can have very similar thyroid hormone levels in somebody in thyroid storm and, and somebody not. But the two kind of hallmarks of thyroid um, extremes, both thyroid storm and myxedema coma. One is mental status change. So that is with both, right? So, so myxedema coma, even though they call it coma, you don't necessarily have to have a coma. And also with thyroid storm, there's usually some mental status change. And then with thyroid storm, there's hyperthermia and with myxedema coma, there's hypothermia. So, so there's some mental status change and there's some temperature dysregulation. And those are kind of the, the cardinal features of the two disorders. And these are clinical diagnoses. So, um, uh, there are scoring scales, and I'm going to show you those in a sec, but 
but really it's, it's a clinical diagnosis. So there's no one test that you can do that says this person has thyroid storm or not. Um, and so, um, you know, the main clinical features, like I said, is hyperthermia and, and altered mental status. And again, it doesn't have to be coma for any of these. It can be, but it doesn't have to be, but it can be just even severe agitation or delirium or psychosis. And so we will once in a while pick up somebody um, who has um, uh, even like schizophrenic features or, um, uh, um, you know, like more manic features usually. Um, and, and so psychiatry will check thyroid levels all the time. And usually it's non-thyroidal illness and it's like, it's kind of like a pain, but, but sometimes they will actually pick up frank thyroid disease. And, and so, <clears throat> and, and when we treat it, they actually, you know, the person goes back to normal. So it's pretty amazing that how much um, uh, effect it can have on, on, uh, on your mental health. Um, so, and then typically it's, it's usually the other things that, that we associate with thyroid toxicosis anyway, but they just tend to be more severe. So more severe tachycardia or atrial tachyarrhythmias, um, you know, CHF tends to be high output um, systolic hypertension, which we mentioned. And you can have GI dysfunction. It can be pretty severe, um, pretty profound, actually. And so I'll show you some of that um, data as well. And it, it's pretty, um, uh, it's a little bit, uh, the, the challenge with that is that, you know, if you have severe um, uh, transaminitis um, or high bilirubin levels, there's just this fear of using um, uh, of thionamides, which have, you know, potential hepatotoxicity. And so We'll talk about that as well. Um, so, so they, like I said, they have these scoring systems. So, so Wartowski is actually um, a very well-known thyroid endocrinologist um, just down the road in, in DC. Um, he's part of the MedStar um, Hospital Center um, group of, of thyroidologists, and they have a, a, a really, um, you know, a great practice there. Uh, Len Wartowski and um, Ken Berman are two very well-known um, uh, experts in the field of thyroidology. Um, both of whom are probably close to retiring soon. Um, so we'll see how, it, um, how their legacy perpetuates. Um, so this is, this is pretty old, but they, they came up with this scoring system um, where you kind of just get points for these different areas. And so if you're above 45 points, <clears throat> you're considered um, highly, highly likely to have thyroid storm. And then if you're between 25 and 44, um, you know, it could be suggestive or impending storm, and then below 25 is unlikely. So you can see the temperature and the and the um, CNS effects tend to have the most weight in terms of um, uh, giving, you know, or producing the score. So these are the really the two most important parts. But then there are all these other issues with you know GI dysfunction, um, tachycardia, and, and and CHF and AFib and so on and so forth. So so you kind of can plug in all these points and and then give you kind of a more validated, objective, um, uh, you know, uh, idea that you have thyroid storm. Now, again, these are the two most important. So if you have, you know, hyperthermia and CNS changes, you're probably going to get quite a few points. Um, and if they have these two, I would, I would classify them as thyroid storm. Now, the Japanese have a slightly different scoring um, algorithm, and I'll go through that too. Um, but it's, again, it's based mostly on these two things. Um, so, so what's the difference between just thyroid toxicosis and thyroid storm in kind of a, a general sense? And, and it's really, um, you know, it's, it's something that triggers uh, this storm and, and, um, and it causes this homeostatic dysregulation. Um, 
and, and, and that's what really um, kind of sends you into this thyroid storm. So like I said, the levels could be very similar and you can have tachycardia with thyroid toxicosis, but you shouldn't be hyperthermic and you shouldn't have mental status changes. And so something happens where this homeostatic mechanism gets disrupted. And usually it's, it's a trigger. Like most chronic diseases, there's usually a trigger to throw you into a, in a, into a crisis, right? Whether it's a heart failure exacerbation <clears throat> or an asthma attack or DKA or thyroid storm. So, so there's something, and usually it's like an infection, which you know, is a trigger for many things. Um, uh, and so what we find is that um, you know, in the, on the labs, um, like I said, the, the thyroid hormone levels might not be much different. You could have hyperglycemia, you could have hypercalcemia, <clears throat> and usually that's increased bone turnover because again, it's a metabolically um, more activated state. And so the bone starts to turn over more and you start to leach calcium from the bone. Um, these patients tend to be hypercoagulable um, with thyroid storm and with mixed edema coma, it's the, it's the opposite. They actually have um, uh, more bleeding diathesis and, and issues with that. Um, and then you can have the liver tests and, and often a, a coinciding infection with leukocytosis. Um, so these were, this is just looking at the liver tests and, and I'll show you why this is important in just a second. But these were actually two patients um, at, our, um, at our institution. So this is Kristen Hall was one of our old fellows, and this is a paper that we had <clears throat> presented with these two cases. But you can see the profound level of, of transaminitis, but, but really this um, hyperbilirubinemia, where you know, bilirubin levels of 30 and 40 um, in these patients with thyroid storm. And so um, one of these was a patient, so just a quick story. Um, one of these was a patient that um, was one of uh, the first patients I ever saw when I was a fellow um, on call. And, um, and as you know, we start in July. And so it was July 4th weekend. And July 4th actually happened to be on a Monday that year. And so it was the first weekend on call and I was a first year fellow and didn't know um, what the heck I was doing really. And so they called with this patient who was in thyroid storm uh, and she was pregnant and in the ICU and intubated and in heart failure. And so um, pretty sick patient, they call on Friday night. So it's like, you know, and, and we're endocrinologists. So I guess critical care people don't realize that we don't, typically, I mean, we do now, but we didn't then um, work every day of the weekend. So weekends were typically not staffed by uh, attendings. And, um, and the attending on call, um, so I, I, I did call him on Friday night and uh, I told him that we have this patient who's you know, pregnant and in thyroid storm and has a bilirubin of 40 and, and, uh, and should we treat them with a thionamide because <clears throat> with all this liver dysfunction, is that safe to do? Um, and he didn't answer me on Friday night. So, you know, you go to your resources, you look up stuff, you take a plunge and you treat. And so we did treat. And so he didn't answer me on Friday. He didn't answer me on uh, Saturday. He didn't answer me until Sunday night. He answered me finally. And, um, and he said he had fallen asleep on his boat and his phone fell, fell, into the, um, fell into the water. So I guess he didn't have a phone all weekend. So, um, so anyway, and then on Monday was the holiday. So we didn't actually even see the patient until Tuesday. So this is this is back in the good old days when we weren't as um, vigilant, unfortunately, but thank God all our patients um, hopefully uh, still made out okay. So, um, so anyway, this, the, you know, so this is scary in terms of should you put these patients on PTU or methimazole, but what we found is that, and there's many case studies like this and, and some case series that show that you, you actually can treat through this, put them on the drug, and, um, and then um, and this, this is with treatment that you can see their liver function actually gets better. Um, despite being on a potentially hepatotoxic drug. But again, this is what we usually refer to as Graves hepatopathy. And so it's just the thyroid disease itself is causing this um, massive um, 
liver dysregulation that can improve uh, once you treat the underlying uh, hyperthyroidism. Um, so like I said, the, the data mostly um, with these conditions comes out of Japan. And so they have this large national database that they can use and, and kind of look into um, uh, you know, these more rare conditions because they just have a, such a huge uh, pool of patients and, and encounters to, to, um, uh, to look through. And so this is a 350 patients with thyroid storm in Japan. Um, this slide just makes the point that you know, most of these patients presented within the, um, the first, um, first year. So this is number of years um, that they've had uh, hyperthyroidism. So you can see less than one year. And then even those patients that were less than one year, it was actually their presenting, um, their presenting uh, uh, diagnosis was the thyroid storm. So, so that, that's how they presented with thyroid toxicosis. So you can see it's zero, zero months. Um, but you can see some people have had it for a long time and, and can still get it. But but for the most part, it tends to present early that um, it's an undiagnosed condition and then all of a sudden they come in and they're in thyroid storm. Um, and you can see the different triggers. Like I said, usually infection is a big one, but <clears throat> it can be um, a lot of different things, just you know, non-adherence to drug regimen. Um, we actually had, um, we had a case of a guy who got um, tasered and went into thyroid storm. So he was running away from the police. The police shot him with a taser gun and, um, and he went into thyroid storm. So, so there's all kinds of potential triggers in, including um, tasering people, but that's, that's like a Baltimore thing. So, but you guys should know about that. Um, so this is a Japanese criteria. So the Japanese, instead of this Birch Wartowski, they came up with their own criteria. And, and you can see their, their top two um, symptoms are also um, change in mental status and, and hyperthermia. So you can see this really is a, is a cardinal um, factor in diagnosing this uh, clinically. Uh, but you can see they also have tachycardia, CHF, and, and GI symptoms. So, so they basically, they have what they call this TS1, which is definite thyroid storm, and TS2, which is um, what they kind of consider um, suspected or, or possible thyroid storm. And so TS1 is if you have a CNS manifestation, um, you know, number one plus any of these. So if you have this plus any one of these, that's really considered thyroid storm. Um, and then if you have if you don't have this, but you have three out of four of these, that's TS2. So that's just kind of how they made up their stuff. Um, and so I'll, I'll get back to that in, I think, the next slide. Um, so one thing that's important with this liver uh, dysfunction, um, which I mentioned, is that um, the, the bilirubin actually does um, predict mortality. And so bilirubin above three, you can see the mortality is almost one in three <clears throat> versus one in 10 if your bilirubin is not above three. So this Graves hepatopathy does... Um, uh, does predict a higher mortality. So that is something to consider and something to, um, to really, um, uh, you know, look at. Um, and then, you know, for the Japanese, this TS1 versus TS2, the mortality rates are roughly similar. It's like 10 or 11 percent. So it didn't, so it seems like, you know, if you have either TS1 or TS2, you're, you're in kind of that thyroid storm um, high-risk category and, and with a pretty high mortality, one in 10. <clears throat> and you can see the cause of mortality, multi-organ failure, CHF, respiratory dysfunction, and so on. So, so it's the usual things that, that we um, often think of. And then, you know, this is just, they did a study to kind of look at how well do Birch Bortowski and um, this uh, Japanese criteria, how well do they line up? So if you remember, um, above 45 for Birch Bortowski um, was likely to be um, thyroid storm. <clears throat> and you can see most of these that are above 45 in this group here also are in the TS1 and TS2 category. Um, so they seem to match pretty well. Um, and then the ones that are lower tend to also have less TS1 and TS2. So, 
So again, if you're below 25, also your Japanese score is lower. So it seems like the Japanese and the Birch-Wartowski um, do predict similarly and, and, and similar symptoms, so it kind of makes sense. Um, so this is um, 1,300 patients with thyroid storm and, a, and again, another um, national database in Japan. And again, the mortality is around 10%. So this is pretty consistent across any of the big um, uh, you know, observational studies that they have. Um, now, what's interesting is thyroid storm tends to occur more in the summer. Myxedema coma tends to occur more in the winter. I mean, they're very, very like diametrically opposite um, conditions. Um, and so, um, you know, there's not many things that predict mortality, but one is age. So the older you are, um, the higher the, um, uh, the odds ratio of, of mortality. And then um, second is, um, uh, you know, use of beta blockers actually um, was a lower mortality. So, so again, uh, an important kind of treatment um, consideration, which we'll talk about at the end, um, but beta blockade does seem to help. Um, and then this is, um, this is, I think, interesting because it kind of looks at thyroid storm over the years. And you can see the mortality rate used to be a lot higher. So we're talking about 60 to 80%. Um, and that's, I think, before we had good supportive care. So really the critical care um, that these patients receive is, I think, the most important. Because the drugs we use, like steroids and, um, and, uh, and thionamides, have been around for a long time. Um, and then um, you can see, you know, in the more recent decades that the mortality is closer to that 10% that we've um, that we've quoted. And you can see patients weren't getting intubated and now they are. I'm not sure when, um, when all of this um, uh, kind of um, uh, came to, to be, but, um, but, you know, I don't know when they started mechanical ventilation or stuff, but maybe it just wasn't around. I'm guessing it wasn't around back here. Um, but you can see, you know, these patients are getting intubated and they're getting good supportive care. Um, you actually, um, you know, the increased uh, rate of plasma paresis as well, um, uh, which has occurred, um, and so 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 this is you know three drug therapy intubation and um, and plasmapheresis, which is also increased. Now plasmapheresis isn't that common, and I'll I'll show you. Um, uh, we'll just mention it briefly, but um, but it is a, another uh, technique we can use to help. And then this is a a French study. So the French, you know, had 92 patients. So again, it's it's such a rare disorder that that you just it's hard to get a big group. So the Japanese are amazing in that they had like. You know, they have 1,300 patients here that they could look at, which is, is pretty phenomenal. Um, so the French had 92 patients. And so they are looking at this six-month <clears throat> mortality um, in, in patients with, with thyroid storm. And um, basically, you know, in ICU mortality was 17%, and six-month mortality was 22%. Um, and cardiogenic shock was the biggest predictor in this study of, um, of, of having a worse prognosis. So if you had cardiogenic shock within the first 40 out, 48 hours, um, your survival rate was lower um, uh, in this in, on this side, and then your higher, um, you know, organ failure assessment score, SOFA score, um, um, also predicted, you know, more mortality. So kind of obvious, I guess, um, conclusions that you would think that if you have shock or you have worse, um, you know, organ failure assessment score, that you're gonna you're gonna fare worse, and so that's that was true. Um, and this slide, I, I, this stuff you don't have to worry about, but I just kind of um, did it for the, the different reasons of why people end the thyroid storm. So you can see here, like amiodarone-induced thyroiditis was actually one of the highest um, uh, reasons or etiologies for thyroid storm in this French study. So I thought that was kind of interesting because, um, you know, we don't typically think of this causing that. You would think maybe the amiodarone would be protective in a sense with arrhythmia, but, um, 
but uh, interesting nonetheless. And then um, you can see again, graves, the adenoma or the multinodular goiter, and then thyroiditis. So the typical things that cause thyrotoxicosis also can, um, uh, those patients can potentially go into thyroid storm. <clears throat> so, um, so treatment of thyroid storm is, 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 like I said, it's been around for a long time. So, so you admit them to the ICU, um, and then we, we you know, draw thyroid function studies, and you, be, you really begin treatment based on clinical suspicion. So you don't necessarily have to wait for thyroid uh, tests to come back if you really have a strong clinical suspicion that this is um, thyrotoxicosis, and then the supportive care and really um, uh, early intubation. And then you know, we either give PTU or we give methimazole. Um, thyroid storm is the one. There's a few indications for PTU still. So that, you know, the PTU has a black box warning from the FDA that that it causes idiosyncratic liver failure. And so it's not a recommended first line treatment for thyroid um, thyrotoxicosis anymore, but thyroid storm is one place where they sometimes still use it because of its potential effects on um, T4 to T3 conversion. And so, um, so it, you know, you can still use high dose methimazole, that's fine, but, but you can use PTU. Some of these patients can't take things orally. So the pharmacy can, um, sometimes make up IV um, concoctions of this or um, rectal suppositories. So there are other ways to, to get these drugs if the patient can't take anything by mouth and doesn't have a, a tube, a feeding tube um, uh, in at the point. Um, and then you actually want to give iodine. And so um, iodine is an interesting um, uh, uh, you know, mineral in that it, it, um, it, it, it's used to make thyroid hormones. So there is this thought of exacerbating thyroid uh, or thyroid toxicosis, but it actually also decreases thyroid hormone secretion and, and production as well when given in high doses. So this so-called Wolf-Chaikoff effect. Um, so you just want to give the thionamide first before you give the iodine. So you're blocking thyroid hormone synthesis before you give iodine because you don't want to stimulate more thyroid hormone synthesis. So as long as you block synthesis, then you can give iodine to kind of actually block it even more and block release uh, of thyroid hormone. And so that's usually we give saturated solution of potassium iodide or SSKI <clears throat> or Lugols, which is a little bit less concentrated. Um, but I think our hospital has this SSKI. Um, and then beta blockers we give, um, which, um, uh, how much time between the two? So it doesn't have to be much. Usually they'd say within an hour. So you can give the thionamide an hour later, you can give the iodine. So, um, so you can give it pretty, um, you don't have to wait that long. Um, but you do want to start slamming them on all these things pretty, pretty quickly. And so, and then beta blockers, propanolol has been kind of the standard treatment um, historically, just because again, you have decreased T4 to T3 conversion with the non-selective beta blockers. But, you know, we use, <clears throat> we use metoprolol, you can put them on asmolol drip if you really need um, better um, kind of control of their hemodynamic, um, you know, management. And so, so any of those are fine because you're giving enough things to block uh, conversion anyway. If you, if you give PTU or if you give steroids, which we end up giving most people um, that's, that's also blocking conversion. So there's, you know, steroids are multifactorial. So usually with Graves disease, they have a very swollen and, and bulky gland, <clears throat> which is very vascular. So giving the steroids will help, you know, kind of help decrease that inflammation as well, but really is to help um, decrease their conversion of T4 to T3 also. Um, and then you treat the underlying cause. So, so this is kind of a you know, I could have given this lecture 10 years ago, 20 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago, and not much would have changed. So, so that this is um, uh, the standard treatment. And then there's other things that we can do. So we mentioned plasma phoresis. So you can freeze off um, T4. Um, the problem is that, again, T4 has a very long half-life. And so that's usually a temporary fix. 
But in patients who aren't responding quickly uh, and who are really um, critically ill, it is something that can buy you a little bit of time until the thionamide and the steroids and all those other treatments start to work and, and decrease thyroid hormone production. Um, you can even <clears throat> dialyze these off through the peritoneum. <clears throat> you can give bile acid sequestrants and that um, will bind um, thyroid hormone in the gut uh, and decrease this enteropathic recirculation. Um, lithium can be given, although I don't, I don't think I've ever seen anyone get lithium in the thyroid storm, um, but it does actually block thyroid hormone release as well. So, um, so I guess if push comes to shove and you really have nothing else to, to give, you can give that. And then when you want to treat the hyperthermia, it's, it's important not to give um, salicylates and you want to give acetaminophen. Um, and the reason is that they think that you can inhibit thyroid hormone binding <clears throat> to its you know, binding globulin um, if you give salicylates. And so you don't want to increase the free hormone when they're already so toxic. Um, and then this just kind of shows where the different <clears throat> mechanisms of the different drugs. So the thionamide, either PTU or methimazole. In Europe, they have mostly carbimazole, which is just a um, get, gets metabolized into methimazole. So it's kind of a precursor of, of methimazole. Um, so these block thyroid hormone synthesis. You can give iodine-based <clears throat> um, um, really these contrast agents, which block um, you know thyroid hormone synthesis. But iodine itself in high doses, like I said, can block synthesis and release. And then lithium blocks thyroid hormone release. So you can kind of work on it from both sides. Um, decrease synthesis, which is important more intermediate term, and then decrease release, which is more important kind of right away. Um, so that's in a, in a nutshell thyroid um, storm. And then, and then myxedema coma. So I kind of already, I mean, I kind of already answered this, but it's, it's basically it's B and C again, right? So myxedema coma, like I said, like thyroid storm, you have um, the mental status changes, but here you have hypothermia rather than hyperthermia. Um, and the thyroid hormone levels can be very similar. So I have, you know, I have a lot of patients who have a TSH of 200 plus and they come in and, you know, they're just a little cold, but they feel okay. And so um, they're definitely not in myxedema coma, even though their thyroid hormone levels are like zilch. Um, <clears throat> so so it's, it's weird, but it's some trigger again that kind of sets off this, um, uh, uh, dysregulation of homeostasis that causes this, this um, kind of exacerbated state. Um, so here, um, usually it's this, this doesn't usually present. So like we said, thyroid storm is often the presenting um, uh, kind of uh, clinical, set, clinical scenario of, thy of thyrotoxicosis, whereas myxedema coma, it's usually these patients tend to have a long-standing history of hypothyroidism. It's often elderly, it's often women, <clears throat> and it's often in the winter months. Um, and this actually has even a higher mortality than thyroid storm, probably because it's older people. Um, uh, most likely that's, that's um, in general, because thyroid storm can occur in, in younger people um, quite often as well. Um, and so, um, you know, again, the incidence is very low. So these are very rare um, uh, situations. So again, so it's this lack, lack of adaptive mechanisms which maintain homeostasis, which is, which is kind of what's thought to... Um, cause this. And it's not totally clear why this happens, um, but something pushes you over the edge. And that something is usually, like I said, an infection or a cardiovascular event or trauma or, um, uh, or even exposure to cold. Um, <clears throat> so um, somebody asked about the seasonal association. So I think it, you know, it kind of makes sense that thyroid storm is in the summer and, it's in a, and you have hyperthermia. So something might kind of trigger the hyperthermia or just being out in the heat for a while. And then that sets off this homeostatic dysregulation, whereas with myxedema coma, you know, it's hypothermia, and so it tends to 
um, occur in the winter months and maybe somebody's left <coughs> out and, and can't, um, you know, because of their hypothyroidism not being controlled, they're not, they're, they kind of set off their homeostatic dysregulation, you know, trigger um, with the cold that, that, that sets it off. So I think just theoretically it makes sense, but I don't know if there's a real mechanism behind it beyond that. Um, this was actually in the New England Journal, Raw Bok Choi. So this is something that um, can also potentially interfere with um, your thyroid um, hormone and, 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 and cause hypothyroidism and, and even myxedema coma. So it's just, I don't know how many people actually ingest that. It's just, um, well, it's in the New England Journal, you mentioned it, I guess. Um, so again, the, the big two features are the mental status change and the hypothermia. And though, even though this is called myxedema coma, um, really it can be any um, kind of um, spectrum of mental status change from disorientation and paranoia, <clears throat> depression and hallucination. So they can also have psychiatric manifestations and, um, and the hypothermia you know, can mask a potential infection. And so these patients <clears throat> exactly, you know, kind of the opposite of, of what we saw with thyroid storm. So instead of tachycardia, they have bradycardia, they can have hypotension or they can have hyper, you know, diastolic hypertension and, and, um, and then this delayed relaxation of, of, um, of reflexes um, or areflexic uh, hyponatremia, hypoventilation. And so these patients really, um, there's a really low threshold to ventilate. We, we really suggest that they basically get ventilated as soon as you make the diagnosis um, to really protect their airway. Because there's this de decreased, um, you know, respiratory drive, but then there's also, um, so you can get a lot of accumulation of these, um, uh, you know, mucopolysaccharides that occur with this myxedema, even in the airway, and, and you can get what they call supraglottic myxedema, and so you can get airway obstruction, and so there is a really high risk of, of respiratory failure in these patients, so it's very important to, to ventilate them quickly. Um, and then you can get seizures and things like, which can be due to electrolyte or, or metabolic disturbances. Um, so here on the exam, you know, you look for a possible thyroidectomy scar, they had thyroidectomy, the reason of, of, um, <clears throat> of their hypothyroidism, um, kind of the puffy, puffiness in their face and, and the myxedema in their legs. And um, you know, they can have a large tongue. Uh, so these, these, what they call these mucopolysaccharides or glycoaminoglycans glyco can accumulate in a lot of these different places, coarse hair, yellowed skin. Um, you know, their, T their T waves can be flat and they can have like low amplitude um, QRS. So just kind of, um, and they can even get pericardial effusion. So you can see kind of all these different uh, manifestations. And so kind of here, the non-fitting edema, rounded faces, just this poor guy just looks, <laughs> looks depressed. Um, and then the lack of the kind of the, the lateral eyebrows kind of thinning out. So you can see here that the lateral eyebrows are thinned out. So that's a big sign of, you know, potential sign of hypothyroidism as well. <clears throat> so here you're gonna have the low T4, T3 and the high TSH in primary. Um, again, in, you know, you can have secondary hypothyroidism. That's more common than secondary hyperthyroidism, but again, it's rare. Um, but if somebody does have a history of pituitary disease, then you could, um, and we've had cases of myxedema coma for sure that have occurred because of central hypothyroidism. So that's, that's a possibility here. So, so you just have to keep that in mind. But in, you know, in general, most of these patients, 95 plus percent are going to have primary hypothyroidism. Um, you know, the hyponatremia is, is usually because of decreased free water clearance. Um, and, and there is some data that reports higher mortality in patients who are hyponatremic. Um, and you can get kind of just this anemia of chronic disease. 
And here you get a coagulopathy. So as in contrast to hyperthyroidism or, or thyroid storm where you're, um, you're hypercoagulable, here you actually um, have a decrease in clotting factors and can have a bleeding tendency to bleeding. Um, and then you, know, you often get a myositis and um, high CPKs. And like I said, you can see even a pleural effusion or, or, car or um, pericardial effusion sometimes. <clears throat> so, so this same um, guy, Wartofsky, who came up with the, um, with the thyroid storm score back in 1993, I guess he realized 20 years later that, hey, nobody actually took, took the lead on this and made a score for, for um, myxedema coma. So, so in 2014, he published with, with um, some of his colleagues um, a similar score for, for myxedema coma. <clears throat> so again, you can see the temperature and the, and the CNS effects for the big two things that can, um, that can occur and, and, and get the most points. Um, and then also you can get GI and, and cardiac findings, but they're slightly different right here. You have bradycardia versus tachycardia or, or these effusions. Um, and then some of these metabolic disturbances get points as well. And so again, you can use this more of as, as an objective finding to, to, to you know, alert people in the chart. And so the score, so this is above 60, so it's, it's kind of backwards. And then this is below 60 and below 45. So 45 to 60 is considered at risk. And then above 60 on this scoring chart um, is considered you know, likely myxedema coma. So again, it's something that we can use. Usually if we consult on these patients, we will mention the score. Just again, it's an objective um, piece of data that you can put in a chart to kind of um, you know, solidify your diagnosis. Um, but again, if you have an elderly patient that's hypothermic with hypothyroidism, who has mental status changes, that's myxedema coma. I mean, it's, it's, it's a clinical diagnosis. Um, <clears throat> so, so again, the Japanese tend to be the ones with the, with the biggest data. And myxedema coma has even less data than, um, than thyroid storm, which, um, which also doesn't have much data. Um, so here they you know, looked at 19 million people and 149 of these had actually a diagnosis of myxedema coma. Um, again, you can see it's the elderly, tends to be more female, and the mortality rates tend to be higher. So we initially I said about 20%. So this one even 30% roughly. <clears throat> but again, it's only 150 patients. So um, and most patients again were in the winter, um, and the incidence you can see is extremely low, one per million per year. Um, okay, so here um, the treatment again. I mean, um, not a lot of uh, of new things. So you admit to the intensive care unit and a lot of you know, intense supportive care. Um, like I said, we really um, tend to ventilate almost all of these patients. Um, you, here you wanna check both thyroid function and also um, cortisol, because there is this um, fear of, of, of um, you know, coexisting hypoadrenalism. And so these patients we end up treating with steroids um, empirically. Um, you can draw cortisol and then and start treating. And then once the cortisol comes back, <clears throat> you know, if it's like 30, then you don't have to continue obviously. But um, but it is important to, to draw that before you treat. Um, and again, you wanna treat based on clinical suspicion and wait for the labs to come back. Um, they do recommend passive rewarming. And the idea is that if you use heating black blankets, um, you know, you can cause cutaneous vasodilatation and then the core body temperature might drop even more. So you don't wanna, you don't wanna try to, you know, don't wanna do that. Um, and then again, treating the underlying cause. So how do we give them thyroid hormone? That's, that's the big question. And so, um, again, not, there's not a lot of data on this at all. And so, and a lot of it's somewhat conflicting and, and really small studies. So, so the idea is you want to improve their mental status, but you don't want to um, 
you know, cause a tachyarrhythmia, especially in these older patients that um, might already have underlying heart disease. So if you give them this big bolus of, you know, T3, uh, I'm sorry, um, levothyroxine T4, um, you know, there is this risk of, of precipitating a, a potential tachyarrhythmia and a malignant arrhythmia. So you just have to be careful. Um, so typically what they recommend though is if you really have mixed edema coma, give them a loading dose to kind of replete your peripheral pool of, of um, thyroid hormone and then just give the IV um, daily dose after that. Um, and, and the newer protocols are using lower doses and I think that makes sense just again to be a little bit safe in these elderly patients with potential underlying heart disease. Um, so we, we, we tend to give like a 300 microgram bolus or maybe even a 200 if they're really old and, and frail um, and then just kind of put them on a daily dose. And the IV really is for several reasons. Um, one is a lot of them are, you know, if they're comatose, obviously they can't eat. Um, and thyroid hormone is, is poorly absorbed in the gut to begin with. Um, and then when you have somebody who's myxidematous and might not, um, might have a boggy gut or, or, you know, might not be absorbing as well, um, then you might have even poorer absorption. So, so we tend to give IV at least until they perk up and then their mental status improves. Now there is some controversy whether we can give um, concurrent T3 as well. And again, this is the active hormone, right? So this is, you would think that this would be better if somebody's really zonked out that, that we should give them the active hormone and be more aggressive. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a little bit tricky because, um, you know, the, it does cross the blood-brain barrier more readily. And so there is some idea that it could expedite neurologic improvement, um, you know, more quickly. But there, um, but there are um, studies that also show that it, in, it increased mortality. Um, so again, and, and these critically ill patients, typically it's a low T3 state. Um, so this would be similar, obviously they're hypothyroid, so they have a low T3 to begin with. Um, and so you, do you wanna like perk up their metabolism too fast? So <clears throat> it is a little tricky. So, so we will sometimes give this, especially if somebody's comatose, we'll start with T4, give them a day or two. If they, if they really don't perk up at all, then maybe starting with really a low dose of T3 to see if we can get some neurologic improvement um, might be um, you know, worth considering. So it is something to consider, um, but I wouldn't start with it. We usually just start with T4 um, and then go from there. And then, like I said, we, we usually give stress dose steroids um, you know, just prophylactically. And then um, you know, there's, there's one study of 11 patients. So this is like not um, good literature by any means. Um, but here they gave the loading dose and then the 100 versus just the, you know, the 100 straight off the bat. And um, they found that the, um, you know, the loading dose had a lower mortality than, the, than the, the one where you didn't give a loading dose. But again, it was only 11 patients. It wasn't statistically significant. So I'm not sure what you can make out of that. Um, so really there's not great data on, on that. Um, and I think this is my last slide. So um, I know it's three o'clock, so I can just quickly, so this is an old, you know, elderly woman who's unconscious, <clears throat> found by her daughter and um, the family was gone for the weekend and returned to find the woman that was unconscious. She was called to touch, 9-11 was called at the ED, her temperature was you know, low, her heart rate was low. Um, she has shallow and frequent respirations, so she's intubated. So sounds like mixed edema coma. Uh, she has a history of hypothyroidism. She, they don't know if she's taking her meds. And then the labs show that her sodium is low, her creatinine's you know, 1.1, which for an elderly person, um, probably slightly high. Hematocrit's normal, INR is high, CPK is high, cortisol, TSH, and free T4 are depending. So what, which is your unexpected laboratory finding? I know we're not supposed to use kind of negative questions, which this sort of is, but would you expect the hyponatremia? Would you expect the normal hematocrit? Would you expect the increased INR? Would you 
expect a CPK level to be high. I guess which one of these would you not expect to see? Um, I can give one minute or 30 seconds for this as we're late. Um, let's see if uh, anybody has any ideas. So B, D, B. All right, one more answer and then let's see. All right, well, maybe it's uh, too late. So um, so it is, um, um, it's B, you, you know, usually these patients are anemic. So, so, um, so you, you know, they usually will be hyponatremic. Like we said, they usually have a, um, a decreased clotting factor. So they, they might have an increased INR and they often have a myopathy <clears throat> and elevated CPK level. So, so they usually are anemic. So you wouldn't expect a normal hematocrit. So that's, that's that one. Um, okay, so that's that. Um, I know it's late, but if anyone did have any questions, I can stick around for a few minutes and um, comments, concerns, commendations. This was great. I, I think this is important stuff. We talk about the differential diagnosis of hyper and hypothyroid and thyroid storm and myxedema all the time in the MICU, at least on our rounds. Um, and uh, certainly this is on the critical care boards. So I think this is a really excellent review uh, for all of us and, and, um, and force us to kind of think through the physiology and the pathophysiology and the feedback loops that are involved here. So thank you so much.